God loves you. He really loves you. And he wanted to reveal himself so we could know him. And together we could help the world. And so that is why we have the Bible. The Bible is his word to us. But so many people don't understand it. Or they've just been told the wrong things about it. So many things affect the way we interpret the Bible, look at the Bible, or think about the Bible. And you know what? Too often we become bored with the Bible. So this is a podcast to hopefully refresh our relationship with the Bible and in turn refresh our relationship with God. My name's Ken and I'm your guide on this refresh journey. And my prayer and hope is that it would be a fruitful one for both you and me. So welcome to my podcast. Let's dive in. Good day to you. I hope that you are enjoying yourself today and realizing that the Lord is good. You know, it's so funny. People, I've had friends who, you know, they have doubts. And the doubts about, is this uh, all real? Is God real? Is the Bible real? Is Jesus real? You know, all these things. But there's another type of doubt that you could go through. Not, do I doubt God exists or anything like that. But do I doubt it's worth it? Do I doubt God's good? And that sort of doubt doesn't really take away the belief system or acceptance of, you know, somebody saying, hey, this is all true, but it's enough to make them say, you know, forget it. I don't want to battle sin anymore or forget it. I just don't know if God's good. He let my mom die or he let my brother die or these things that happen or he took away all these things or he doesn't answer my prayers. Like I just, you know, so why would I bother? Well, you know, it's just, it's interesting because, you know, Jesus can relate. Jesus can relate with just that sense of it's hard. Now, how can God, as man, have it hard? Well, you know, if you think about the incarnation, you think about Jesus coming from a place where he is known and worshipped, where he sat on the throne and angels worshipped him 24-7, and he had no wants, no needs, no pain, nothing. He comes down to a land where there's no indoor plumbing, there's no air conditioning, there's no internet, there's none of the, the things we have today. And so he lived in a, a hard time. And it was a hard life. And he had to work and he had to do some things. And even when he started his ministry, the way he starts out is he goes into the desert. And that's where we are starting in, in chapter 4 here. And so chapter 4, we see Jesus really going through things that we go through every day. So let's start with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So right there, it's interesting, right? It says the Spirit led Jesus to be tempted. So this was a preordained event. This was a planned event. The Spirit of God wanted Jesus to be tempted. Now, why would God or the Spirit of God desire to have Jesus be tempted, well, it's because part of what Jesus is doing is coming down and becoming one of us so that we could know God, so that we could relate with God on a different level. 
And he wants to be as accessible to as many as possible. And he wants to be able to give his life as a ransom in a pure and total way. And so if he was never tempted, in other words, if it was an easy road he had, then if there was no no tests, if you will, no tests for him to pass, then there would be maybe a questionable level of can he really pay for my sins, for your sins, for all the world's sins, if what he went through was not what we go through. And so for him to be sinless, does it count if he was sinless in a place where he wasn't tempted to sin? So there's that element. And then there's the element of, hey, when we are tempted, we know that we have a Messiah or a Savior who understands us, who relates, who actually is very gracious and, and you know cares. So he goes out in the wilderness, which is also where John the Baptist was, but this is just a different wilderness because he's by himself now. And the wilderness often has symbolism throughout the Bible of really a testing place or a, ta- a place of preparation. Oftentimes you see people, whether it's Moses, whether it's Abraham, whether it's the Israelites, whatever, that the wilderness is, is a testing ground, but it's also a preparation ground. And so here we see Jesus is being led out there to be tested, and also this is preparation for his ministry. So verse 2, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Okay, so right there, fasting 40 days. I've done a few different 40-day fasts, but I did it with juice. He's out in the desert. There's nothing. And so this is a supernatural fast because you cannot live 40 days without water. And so already what we see is Jesus goes through a very supernatural activity, a super long fast that he needs God to keep him alive. And it's the end of these 40 days where he is just weak. He's just deplenished of all nutrients. He just has no strength physically or even emotionally because those are connected. And verse 3, it says, And the tempter came and said to him, so this is Satan, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Okay, so he's saying, prove that you are the Son of God. Prove that you are God. If you really are God, prove it. Now, this is an interesting temptation because here Jesus is in a human body, dealing with the frailty, the frailty of being human, dealing with the heat and the uncomfortableness, dealing with having to go to the bathroom out in the desert without toilet paper or whatever. I don't know what that looked like. Here is someone who is dealing with hunger pains. Here's someone who's dealing with weight loss. Here's someone who's dealing with emotions. And so really the tempter is coming and trying to convince Jesus of his identity as being a fraud or his identity not being what he really is. So this is an attack on identity. And we often get tempted in this same way, right? So if you are a child of God, then you are accepted by God. You are loved by God. You are his child. And the enemy may come and convince you that you are not his child or not loved by God or that God is judging you or does not like you or something like that. So it's a similar attack. But here in verse 4, he, it says, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So here Jesus is talking about, look, the word of God is truth. And the word of God says 
you and I are children of God. The Word of God says, I am the Son of God. And not to mention, look, you're tempting me with bread because I'm starving, right? But, you know, he uses scripture here to say bread doesn't solve the problem. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. So here it's almost like, you know, the devil takes Jesus out of the wilderness and transports him on top of the temple, right? And he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. So that's just kind of a wild scene. It's like, what did that look like? And what I'm also wondering is, did anyone spot them? Like, hey, what are those people doing on top of the temple? But anyways, um, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So he's saying, look, once again, an attack on identity, but also prove your power, prove your worth, prove that you have this support system, and prove you have authority. So he wants Jesus to exercise his authority right now. And Jesus says, look, Verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In other words, look, I don't need to do this. I don't need to prove I have authority. I don't need to prove that I'm the Son of God. I don't need to prove that I'm the Messiah. God says I am. I know I am. And that is enough. Again, the the devil took him to a very high mountain. So once again, we have some sort of you know, tele, you know, teleporting up to the mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Okay, so what mountain is it that he can see the entire world? So are they up in the sky at this point? Is it a figured mountain? I really don't know. It doesn't say, but there's, it does say they went to a mountain, high on a mountain and was able to see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So all the kingdoms. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So Jesus is being tempted by Satan to take the easy way out. What I mean by that is Satan has been given the earth. When he fell, we find out that he's the prince of the earth. And so when Jesus is coming down, he's coming down to take authority away from Satan, to conquer death and Satan, and to redeem man and redeem the earth from him. But Satan is saying, look, you came for this, for all the nations, for all the kingdoms. I'll give you them all. You don't have to die. You don't have to go through this being trapped in a human body on a primitive earth any longer. Just just bow down and worship me and we'll call it a day. So here the enemy is tempting him on compromising righteousness, compromising what is hard to avoid just all the difficult things ahead and to accomplish the same thing much quicker and easier. And so here what the enemy is saying, hey, listen, you know, the, the, the way justifies the means, the means justify the way. Yeah, that's what it is. The means justify the way. Like just, you're trying to get here. And as long as you accomplish the same thing, who cares the path you get there? You can justify the path you take because you're accomplishing the results that you came here for, which is to redeem the world, take ownership in the sense of the world. I'll give that to you. Just worship me. Then Jesus said to him, verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus finally says, enough, Satan, go away. I will not worship you. You know, you've gone way too far here. Clearly, we are commanded to worship the God alone. So in a lot of ways, we live life to, you know, do what it takes to get the result that is needed. And sometimes the result is godly. It's good. But if the path we took requires us to not worship God, not keep him at the center, then what happens is we are disobeying the most fundamental command. We are sacrificing too much to get there. What I find also interesting is that as soon as he's done with this, angels come and attend him, which is almost exactly that second temptation of fall and let the angels catch you. And he says, I'm not going to test God. But after he passed the test, passes all the tests, um, God sends the angels to minister him anyway. So instead of Jesus demanding this help, he stands strong. And at the end, he gets the help anyway. And so there's that sense of, listen, walk the way of God. Stand strong in the path. Do not take the shortcuts. Believe what God says, not what the enemy or the world says. Let your truth be God's truth. Let your identity be in God. And you know what? In the end, God will help you. Verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, this is John the Baptist, his cousin, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So here we have another messianic prophecy from the book of Isaiah, which all of the audience would have known. Everybody who's reading Matthew, who Matthew's writing to, they would have been very familiar with Isaiah and this passage. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, there's that command again. Repent. This is what John the Baptist said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus says, Now repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then you have this, you know, this, this prophecy from Isaiah talking about this light, which is the Messiah, coming on this land. And here we see Jesus going to that land and bringing that light. And so it's, you know, it's, it's very clear. It's very clear to the, his audience that Jesus has now fulfilled already more than enough prophecies. All these prophecies, even, even just here in, in middle way of chapter 4, if you look at these, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, um, escaping out, out of Egypt, right? And then you have this in the land of Naphtali. And, uh, you have all these things that would make it almost impossible for anyone to just do those. And yet, Matthew will continue to pour it on. But right now, if you were an intellectually honest Jew who studied the, the Torah and the prophets, and you knew these, these prophecies were pointing towards the coming Messiah— and you see these being fulfilled in the person of Jesus, even before he starts his ministry, you have to do mental gymnastics to basically, you know, get around the fact or dismiss the fact that this is actually the Messiah. Verse 18, sorry. 
So he says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them immediately. They left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, so. Here we have Jesus. He just comes out of the wilderness and he goes up to these new cities. And this is literally his first action in his ministry. He's starting to redeem the world, build the church of God, build his kingdom. And the first thing he does is he calls four fishermen, two sets of brothers. So he just goes to see and he just looks at fishermen and says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. The first ones, right? Peter and Andrew, they just leave their nets. They leave their boats. Their livelihood, they just leave it, right? That was an investment. That was their income. That was their provision. That was their safety. That was the thing that they relied on to be cared for. That was their sustenance. And by leaving all that and following Jesus, they understood that somehow this prophet, somehow this Messiah, somehow this rabbi would lead to a replacement of these other things in a, in a higher way. So they left their nets. And then we have another set of brothers, James and John. And they're with their father, many nets. And so they leave the family business and they leave the family. Now, obviously, you know, those nets may be remaining there and they can come back and get them later. James and John might be able to go fishing with their father later. But right now, this is very symbolic of, look, Jesus is, takes precedent. He becomes everything. He becomes your sustenance. He becomes your provider. He becomes your father. He becomes your family. He becomes your business. He becomes your livelihood. He becomes worthy of your life and everything in your life. He is worthy. The other thing I find interesting here is that in the time, this rabbinic culture was known within the nation of Israel, but the rabbis would take on disciples who were also religious scholars, just younger in their path. And what would happen is, if you were a religious scholar, if you were a good little Jew who was, you know, deciding you wanted to be a Pharisee, and so you studied, you studied the scriptures, you studied the Torah, you memorized the Torah, you memorized the first five books of the Bible, you you learned um, the prophets. And you just, in the wisdom literature, and you just studied, study, study, and you got to a point where now you wanted to sit under a master teacher. You wanted to sit under a rabbi. And so you would go and you would approach rabbis and you would say, hey, um, can I be your disciple? And the rabbi would look at your credentials and decide yay or nay based on your credentials and your worthiness. It didn't happen the way Jesus is doing it. Jesus didn't have these guys come to him and say, can we be your disciples? Jesus went to fishermen. In other words, not religious scholars, people that were not looking to be disciples, people that were outside the system, people that were not even, you know, um, they didn't even qualify. And instead of accepting or rejecting students who were applying to him, Jesus goes and calls people to be his disciple. So here we see Jesus already turning things completely on their head. Instead of disciples finding rabbis, here's a rabbi finding his disciples. And where he goes to look for them is not in the synagogue. It's not in the temple. It's not in the prestigious families. It's not in the religious schools. It's out on the lake. It is working guys.
Verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his ministry, he calls these people, he's got four disciples, two sets of brothers, and then he goes all throughout the area, all throughout Galilee. So, you know, he just constantly moving around. It says he teaches in their synagogues. So he goes in their places of worship. He goes in their places where they're reading the scriptures and he, he begins to teach. So he's teaching to the Jews. He's teaching to the religious Jews, teaching those who go to the synagogue. But he's not just teaching them. He's displaying the power of God. Right? So he's healing every disease and every affliction. So every disease and every affliction among the people. So that is one of the things that really God gathers the crowds, as we'll see more and more. As people want to be healed, people want to get their friends healed, people want to see these healings. Remember, this was a, a time where people were hungry for the Messiah. They were hungry for the deliverance. And all of a sudden you had John the Baptist, and it was the first prophet they had seen in 400 years. And so you have all these people doing these things, and it's just incredible uh, fervor and energy. And so they come out, and they see it. And, he, and guess what he does? He says, you know, uh, what Matthew is doing here. He says, look... He went through proclaiming the gospel. So, once again, the gospel is something to proclaim. Hear ye, hear ye, everyone is invited to the party. I'm proclaiming this good news that you can have life, that you can be forgiven, that you can have a relationship with God, that you can be restored. And that is something to proclaim. That is not something to not say. A lot of people, you know, will quote Francis of Assisi is what they give credit to. And they say, you know, he said, uh, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Well, I don't think that's the whole quote, but when people quote that, what they're saying is words are not important. Our life is. Jesus says both are. And unless you proclaim the kingdom and then demonstrate it, there is something lacking. But if you just demonstrate it without proclaiming the kingdom, then there's no kingdom to attribute that power. So it's, it's a very distinct order that Matthew is laying out here. He is saying he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and then he demonstrates the power of the kingdom through healing every disease and every affliction. Among the people, okay, and that's also significant because it's not among the holy or among those who were worthy. It's just among generally the people, any human who needed to be touched. Okay, verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Okay, that's a whole nother country. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So his healing powers, his teaching, his authority, like I said before, starts drawing huge crowds. And the amount of affirmaries, the amount of healings that he is doing expands from not just afflictions and, and illnesses, but all of a sudden demon possessions, epileptics, everything. And so what Jesus is demonstrating is there's nothing 
There is nothing that he can't solve. There is nothing that he can't make whole again. There is nothing he can't cure. There is no problem uh, that stumps him. And the more and more that people find this out, the more and more problems come to him. The more and more needs present themselves. And I love how Matthew uses this word that his fame spread. And it's not just that you know, he becomes famous and he draws these huge crowds. It's where it leads to. There's no internet. There's no TV. There's no radio. So by word of mouth of, hey, there's this guy who's healing. There's this guy who's teaching with authority. There's this prophet. There's, he may be the Messiah. It goes, it says, throughout all of Judea, it goes through all of Syria, it goes throughout all these, I mean, it's a very large area. The Decapolis are the 10 towns on the other side where Jews were dispersed. And so you've got these 10 cities here, and then this kingdom here, and this city, and over Syria. So you're looking, if you walk that whole area, it would take, you know, probably months to get from the far end to the other. And yet, this news about Jesus spreads quickly. Now, what's interesting is Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom. These people are getting healed. And what is happening? The entire region is becoming evangelized. Everybody's talking about Jesus. Why? Not because they have to, not because they're supposed to, not because they got trained to, but because they can't help but do it. This is incredible. This Jesus is amazing. What Jesus is doing is unlike anything we've ever seen before. And so this is word that needs to be shared. This is information that has to be spread. And and it does. And so it's not religion. It is simply human nature to share that which we find incredible or shareworthy or amazing. And so that's chapter 4. Jesus begins his ministry. He starts in the wilderness getting tempted and tested. Then he gets then he comes out and the first thing he does is he calls disciples from the fishing boats, from the working docks. He calls two sets of brothers, and they leave their livelihood and their families. Then he goes to crowds, and he declares in the synagogues, the kingdom of heaven is here. And then he demonstrates the kingdom by healing people, by casting out demons, by doing all kinds of works. And as a result, his fame spreads throughout the entire you know, region, just many, many cities and many, many countries all over the place. People know about Jesus. And the more people who know, the larger the crowds become. That's Matthew 4. Keep in mind this picture of these crowds coming from really far away. I mean, Syria is a completely different country. So you've got people coming from actual, you know, the main part of Israel where the temple is. You got people from the northern old kingdom where, you know, Samaritans lived and things like that, from Samaria and Judea. Uh, you got Judea, you got Judah. And then you got the other side of the Jordan River where you have the Decapolis, which are the 10 cities. And then you have Gentiles. And then you go all the way to Syria. And so this is a really large area where people are coming from. And so the crowds are getting really large. So imagine now that Jesus has done all this healing and gotten all these crowds he then begins to teach the quintessential message of the kingdom. And that's where we're going to begin next podcast. Chapter 5 begins the Sermon on the Mount for three chapters. And I don't even know if I'll do a chapter at a time when I get there because this is going to get really thick. But we're going to get the most core teaching of Jesus' rabbinical teachings 
in Matthew starting next podcast. And I can't wait. So thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day. And once again, remember, Jesus gave us this word so that we could be refreshed, that we could have life breathed into us, that we could find the joy of our salvation. So be refreshed.